podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Hey, hey, Op. I'm sorry to bother you, man. You got a minute? Um, yeah? Yeah? Yeah, give me just a second. Let me get my recording equipment out. No, 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 no. I, I just want to... Man, I just want to talk to somebody. I, I don't want to record. Listen, I'm in a bad place mentally. I, I want to talk to you as a friend, not... You know, not with the recording equipment and everything. Oh. Ugh. Ugh. Oh, gosh. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. Sure, can't. Sure, buddy. I don't know what's going on, man. I've just I've just been really down lately. It, I'm getting to a place where it kind of feels like, what's the point, you know? They got me on like three different medications and they aren't helping. All they do is make me tired. I just, sometimes I just feel like ending it some... Recording has initiated. Streaming video to Facebook Live activated. Live streaming on Twitch activated. Cloaking all internet signals. Routing through McDonald's Wi-Fi successful. Was that what I think it was? Crap. Oh, shoot. Dang it. Op. Okay, okay. I just thought if we were going to have a Ronnie McNutt kind of moment that this would be good for Patreon content, you know? Anyways, I, I, know, I know what you mean, man. I, I'm here for you. You, you want to record an episode to forget about that stuff you were uh, just... You know, that stuff you were talking about just now that I was trying to listen to? I mean, I got you on the phone. I, we might as well. Yeah, I guess. Hey, gr- great idea. A oh, great idea. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Hold, hold on, hold on a minute. You know I'm always here for you if you need anything, Kent. Anything at all, right? Turn the fucking music back on. All right, uh, before we get into this story, uh, I got a question. Have you ever had like a terrible job that made you just want to bash in the skull of your employer? So, I follow a rule of thumb that basically this: I am very hard to employ. <laughs> I can't. I have found over the years. I can't imagine why. No, me neither. I, I think it must it must be a quality that I can't see in myself that others do. But for the last 20, 21 years, I've been self-employed like 98% of that time. There's been a couple times where I've worked for someone else, but mostly mine is I don't necessarily have a job that I wanted to bash in the school of my employer as much as there's been two times where I've wanted to bash in the school of someone who I work with, mainly my business partner. One is actually awkwardly ongoing right now. Before I started putting my golden lips to this golden microphone, I had a marketing agency where we were market developing marketing and training for the RV industry. You know, I got to be honest, when you were talking there, I thought you were getting really, really passive aggressive towards me. That's what I... <laughs> 
That's what I thought was. That's what I thought was going on there. Well, for just a, just a minute. I'm I'm on story one of two. So. Okay. 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 There's still there's still an opportunity. There might be a chance. No. Um. So this one's ongoing and it's terrible. I didn't like the guy that I was in business with anyway, and he was really awkward. Lived next door to me. And I was sort of in between businesses that I was owning and getting rid of and selling and moving on and whatever. And he came to me and he's like, we, man, we should, we should work together. We should work. He had just bought an RV and he's like, I got this idea. I went through this thing. And he's not wrong in this fact that when you go and buy an RV, it's basically a spaceship on wheels. It's literally all of the things that make a house run in a box on wheels. Plus an engine the size of a semi. All of that, they'll just hand the keys over to an 80-year-old man with no training whatsoever. And like, see ya. (laughs) Here's a 30-ton death machine on wheels. Exactly. Good luck piloting this this death rocket (laughs) down the interstate at 75 miles an hour with your glaucoma. Exactly. They're just like, by rule and fern, good luck out there. Oh, by the way, it takes diesel, not regular gas. You know, I mean, the, the, the training is zero on this. It's unbelievable. I think they make you fill out a wheel before you before you purchase one. I think that's in the contract there somewhere. <laughs> so somewhere between walking onto an RV lot and saying, I'd like to buy a spaceship on wheels and them saying, here's the keys, there's absolutely almost, you could chalk it up to about maybe an hour worth of a tour on like what you're getting into. And then there's like, I don't know, a lifetime worth of training on things that could kill you or kill others about the big box you just bought. Case in point for one, I never knew this, but if you stop your RV and you're not driving it anymore and it's not level on the road or on the, the surface that it's on, the refrigerator can catch on fire and burn the whole thing down. Oh, <laughs> that little thing. Yeah, that little thing. Because apparently, you know, they don't, they don't let them know that? No, they don't let them know anything. I mean, literally, people go to, you know, for years to get a CDL to drive a semi, and they literally, like you said, they're handing this to someone with uh, epilepsy. <laughs> Diabetes. Yeah, he just got done with traction at the hospital, and now he's, uh, you know, an RV owner. But so many things. So this guy came to me, and he's like, I just bought an RV, and and uh, it's amazing the amount lack of training they have, so let's make a training company. And I was like, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. So we started this company and everything. The majority of the meetings were like at his house in this like weird room in the back of his house. And I always felt really creepy. And like I was kind of creeped out about a lot of his like family too. Like the the interaction, the relationship seemed weird. And he came over to my house one time, knocked on the door. My wife was home and I wasn't there. And he like dropped something off. I came home and she was like, he can never come in our house. I was like, oh, man. Harsh, maybe. But the reason this is ongoing is because I stopped working with him after a while for other reasons, business reasons, but mostly. Um, But today, he's out on bail. He paid $75,000 to be out on bail on charges of sexual misconduct and battery of children. 
Oh, uh, which is common for somebody that owns a um, an RV. Yeah, I was very, very creeped out about. And, and that was a joke. Uh, I've got, I've got, I've got two people in my family that own an RV. They're the sweetest people in the world. So that was that was a joke. But I would say that. I would say that sixty-five to seventy percent of the RV owner population are probably are probably sexual offenders in in some one way or the other. Mm. I would say that stati- yeah, I think you're right. Science is right on sixty, seventy percent. Yeah, and if you're not a P though, and you own an RV, you aren't one of that statistic. So feel good about yourself. Yeah, you're one of the good ones. Yeah. Anyway, he was arrested and charged with these crimes. He was given a seven hundred fifty thousand dollar bail. And he paid it. So he's currently walking around waiting his trial, which is in a couple months. And the charges seem pretty darn solid, which I reflect on. I'm like, oh, that's why that was that way in his house. Oh, that thing. And, you know, I, you could, you wouldn't know it, but a lot of things are like kind of adding up now. So I hope. Not bashing his head as much as I hope the guy gets put in a deep, dark hole for a long, long time if the evidence comes out that uh, is is uh, put against him here. And then one more, once again, not bashing the head in as much as breaking the neck of. I had a business a little while ago, and we, we had a TV show, and we used to take people on, like, bucket list type of trips – and on one of these bucket list trips, the guy that we were taking, he wanted to mountain bike down a ski hill in spring. Is this like for the Make a Wish Foundation or something? What was something like that? Are they all are they all terminal canceled? Like what what is the when I hear bucket list, I think, oh, they're just doing a bunch of stuff because they're getting ready to die. To die. <laughs> no, it was kind of on the other end of the spectrum. It was for small business owners who wanted to make it wanted to succeed we would have this show where we pair up a small business owner with like their mentor or their hero we would get that guy on the show with this small business owner and he would give him like some insight and you know advice and stuff and then we always ended the episode with like a bucket list item that they want to do we jumped out of airplanes we mountain bike oh that's so cliche Oh, it was terrible, but it was 2012. So imagine you know, give me a break. somebody going, "Hey, you can do anything you want with your bucket list thing," and your response is, "I want to go skydiving." Yeah, that's what you came up with, what guy? And they never did my bucket list items. Like we never quartered a llama, we never quartered a llama, or did any things I wanted. I never rode an ostrich. Yeah, I never. I didn't get to use a defibrillator later on someone. No, no, of course not. I never got to survive a high-speed car wreck. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or be jettisoned out the front window of a car at high yeah. speed. Never. Either or. No. This is for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. So, I mean, what does it matter yeah. in the end? Ooh, that's not a bad idea. You kind of do a a Dr. Kevorkian meets Make-A-Wish, and it's sort of like make a quick wish. <laughs> Oh, we just, that's a million dollar idea. Yeah, we're, we're going to take you. You want to go skydiving? No, you don't, you don't need a parachute. We're, we're, this is a one way ticket. Yeah. We're, we're taking your bucket list and we're fast forwarding your mortality. I mean, I don't know what the moral problems are with just taking children up by the bucket loads into the air and throwing them out of airplanes, but, uh, just don't let them know there's not a parrot. Just give them like a Jan Sport loaded with bricks. And they'll be scared for 10 to 15 seconds tops. 
No, because they're kids. All you have to do is jam sport and fill it with helium balloons, and they believe they're going to float. Yeah, they don't even know. Yeah, This parachute is very light. Well, they wouldn't even have that thought. And it's like <laughs> killing two birds. Oh. <laughs> okay, we'll set the bar at 18 years and older. You have to be an adult to do our Make a Quick Wish Foundation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Bucket list. Okay. So anyway, uh, really quick, I'll finish this story. I was going, we were mountain biking down these double black diamond runs on this ski resort in spring, so there wasn't any snow. But the, the courses are just treacherous. And we come around this one corner on this thing, and my business partner and the guy that we were on had already gone around the corner, and they were sitting down there further down the trail yelling at me, speed up! Speed up! And I can't hear what they're saying. And did they all sound like me, like that? Because that was a very southern. <laughs> yeah. Speed up! Speed up! Hi! <laughs> yeah. Oddly enough, I was like, who are those Kentuckians talking to me? <laughs> so I come around the corner on this like bank, and it's a bridge, but it's sort of at an angle, like you're going, you know, like you're going around a corner. And then at the end, it's just this lip that puts you into the air. And I didn't have enough speed, but I thought, oh, well, they probably have dirt right on the other side of the lip. Uh, so I can just like lean forward and roll my bike down the front rather than launching myself, you know, awkwardly into the air. So I get to the end of the lip and I put my bike forward. I'm wearing a motorcycle helmet, like a, like a motocross helmet and one of those neck. Those neck supporter things, you know, and all that. One of those things that, so you can sleep sitting up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I went over the edge of the ramp, eight feet down, straight onto my head, onto my neck, onto my head. I bit through my tongue. I broke four ribs and I didn't know it, but I broke my neck at C1, C2, which is where your brain connects to your spinal column. I broke it. This is fascinating to me because it's just answering so many questions that I've had over the <laughs> – there's just not a good connection there, and that's all it is. You just – there's just like a a spark that fires against you. <laughs> I'm answering the, the quandary of where is this synapse gap that this guy has? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it turns out that I'm actually more powerful than Superman, apparently, because I went to the hospital for my broken ribs and I was like, hey, this is happening. And they're like, why can't you move your head? And I'm like, ah, oh, my neck's just really stiff from the accident. I landed right on my head. And they were like, oh my gosh. And they started point poking at my neck. And I'm like, ow, ow. And so they ran a bunch of CT scans and stuff and said, I I fractured my vertebra next to my brain. And then they're like poking my legs. They're like, can you feel this? I'm like, yeah, I can feel that. And they're like, oh, well, you broke your neck in the same way that Christopher Reeve broke his neck. And really, none of your body should be working below your chin. And I was like, oh, yeah, so I'm I'm more powerful than Superman. Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> and they were like, yes, that's exactly what we're telling you. And 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 then I, I actually recovered. They said never fall on my head again, or I might just, you know, the lights might go out. Finish what you started. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are my stories about your one-line question. How ironic is it that you were doing something for the Make-A-Wish Foundation, and you actually ended up almost in the Make-A-Wish Foundation 
Exactly. Yeah. I almost just became a member of the vegetable aisle at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, it was harrowing. So I do feel some affinity to, you know, those who have lost their limbs because I came really close, I guess. Well, when I came up with this question for you, because I always, you know, when we're when they're when we're doing these episodes, I always think, what would be a good question to ask old Op that I bet he would have a fiery answer to? And sometimes I, I ask these questions and I go, yeah, I can come up with something for that. I'm sure there's something over my long history of employment where I just wanted to bash. And I thought and thought on this. And I don't think I ever had a job where I actually wanted, where I hated my boss. I hated my employer. I never even had a job where I was absolutely miserable, I, I don't think. Yeah. I had jobs that I didn't look forward going to, but I never had a job where I felt uh, that I was mistreated by my employers or my boss. So I thought, well, what's the next best thing? I did have a job one time where I had to commit, I guess this is a crime. I don't know. We'll see. So I was working. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to keep a lot of the details out of this, like names and the name of the place, because I don't even know if there's mm. a statute of limitations on on this. <laughs> but whenever okay. I was probably about 20 years old, I was working construction, and I worked with this fella. Okay. And I really thought highly of him. Hold on. I got an idea. Just to offset any suspicion or having people so they don't Google it, let's not say construction. You are in the ballet industry. I was working in the ballet industry. So I was a dancer in okay, the ballet good. industry. And there was this other dancer there yes. who we will call yeah. Melvin. Okay. Melvin lived at a halfway house, which is <laughs> not what it sounds like. It's not just half of a house. It's... No. It's it's a full house. It's a full place, but it's for recovering <laughs> drug addicts, alcoholics. Okay. All that stuff. Now, okay. Melvin, the dancer, because this employer this employer was aware of his situation, was required to take urine urinary analysis tests. Mm, yes. Okay. Uh, periodically. It is also important to note that Melvin was a Iraq veteran, ex-marine. And at the time, I was waiting to go to boot camp. So I had a lot of respect for this guy. Yeah. He was also probably about 6'3 and solid muscle and was the the kindest, most caring individual I've ever came across in my life. I thought very highly of him. I had a lot of respect for him. This guy just had a lot of demons, and he had a, he had a bad past. He got home from Iraq and just went yeah. down the wrong the wrong hole, right? He just got on the wrong track. So happens to lots of dancers. Yes, many dancers end up just mm. on the couch and that black couch for, you know, bang bros. Yes. <laughs> Melvin never did anything like that that I'm that I'm aware of. No. But Melvin also had a very very violent dark side, and that'll come into play here in a minute. There was a demon inside of him and he was dangerous. This, this human this guy was very dangerous. So I never did drugs. I never was a fan of drugs. I mean, I did drugs, but I was never a fan of them. Mm. I, I never. I was always happy and content with alcohol. So I always had clean piss, always. So I would just piss for Melvin in a little bottle, mm. and he would keep a bottle of my piss mm -hmm. on him at all times. So at any given moment, Melvin had a bottle wow. of my piss on him at the at the construction <laughs> at the ballet school that we were that we were dancing in. That's leotarded. So that's the first thing. So I was he always had my piss on him. And then one day, Melvin was like, he had this really deep voice. 
And he goes, hey, Kent. And I was like, what's up, Melvin? <laughs> and he goes, you want to go to my place on my lunch break? And I was like, yeah, let's do that. That sounds like a good idea. You're a drug addict. And I'm very young and impressionable. And I look up to you. So that sounds like a great idea. Let's do that. Let's go do that. Yes. Well, he's like, all right. Now, he just lived right down the road from the dance studio that we were dancing in. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got in his little Toyota Corolla, and we putt-putt-putted across town. Actually, you know what? I'm just now thinking about this. He, I said he stayed in a halfway house, but he had an apartment. Mm. So maybe he wasn't in the halfway house anymore. I know that at one point he was in the halfway house. Did he have a parole officer yes. or, or like a, yes, you know, he was, a he dance was, manager that he had to report to? Yes, something like that. Mm-hmm. But I remember at one point he was living in a house, halfway house, and then he got to get his own apartment within a certain vicinity of I don't know how I don't know how all that stuff works. But he had a, he had a little apartment not long, not far from. So we we get a thirty minute lunch break, and we go up to his apartment, and he just walks in. We're on the clock, right? So <laughs> he walks in and he's like, "There's bologna and bread in the fridge. You can have whatever you want." <laughs> And he, this is like a really small, shitty apartment. Looks like you ever seen Joe's apartment? That that movie, that movie Joe's apartment yeah, with the cockroaches. Yeah, yeah. That's what it looked like. <laughs> and there was a okay. old. I'll never forget this. There was an old. You know that Marine Corps poster that says Marines across the top, and there's a guy in dress blue saluting. That was hanging. Yes, on his living room wall, but it was only hanging by one thumbtack. So it was off kilt. <laughs> it was like hanging, and it was really dirty. And he like got, went to the fridge and got a beer, and went and sat down, mm-hmm. and took the th- took the lid off the beer and just threw it in the floor and then turned on the TV. And I'm thinking, okay, well, <laughs> well, all right. So this is lunch break for work. You probably shouldn't be, yeah, getting hammered. But it's whatever, you know. I none of my business. This is your place. So I make a bologna sandwich and I kind of <laughs> I sit down. And we're watching TV, and then he takes out, he has a little box, a little wooden box. And he takes it out, and he starts doing drugs out of this wooden box. He starts rolling shit, he starts sniffing shit, he starts doing all kinds of shit. (laughs) By the time our lunch break is over, I've had half of a bologna sandwich because my anxiety is through the roof. (laughs) I'm looking around this place thinking, I guess... I guess this is what the future has in store for me. I guess this is where... (laughs) After you get out of the ballet boot camp, that's yeah, what yeah, it's yeah. going to look like. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, right. So he is stoned out of his mind. He hasn't had enough to be drunk, but he's probably tipsy because he slammed beers while we were on his while we were on lunch break. And then we drove back to the job site to the ballet school at like three miles an hour. It was like he was <laughs> tweaking bad. So I was like, okay, I'm probably not going to have lunch with him again. But, you know, I still think a lot of him. I still kept <laughs> I, I kept him supplied with urine. And then maybe a week later, he comes up to me at lunchtime one time, and he's got – I don't know why they had this at a ballet school, but he had a big piece of PVC pipe, like one-inch piece of PVC pipe. Oh. It wasn't even PVC pipe. It was conduit, metal conduit, you know, that you run wires through. Okay. It was like a one-inch, three-quarters-inch, five, six-foot piece of conduit. And he's like, hey, Kent. Like a standard ballet bar. Yes. Like maybe That's probably what they bar. were going to build with. Okay. It. Right. And he goes, yeah. hey, Kent. And I was like, what's up, Melvin? He's like, you care to meet me back here in this one room uh, on lunch break? 
And I was like, well, I mean, what are you going to do with that conduit, Melvin? He's like, I just need to, I need to talk to you for a minute. And he's holding it like aggressively, right? I'm like, okay, well, this is where it, this is where it ends. He's having some <laughs> kind of flashbacks or something, and he's going to take me back here and just beat me to death with this conduit. So whatever. <laughs> I follow him back there, and he's like, whatever. look, man, this is what happened, all right? I was at a bar last night. And I got into a physical altercation with a dude, and I ended up hurting him pretty bad. And I'm going to be in trouble. And the thing is, like, I'm going to try to have to plead self-defense, but I don't have any wounds. Oh, no. So, and I'm I'm already, like, going over in my head, like, okay, well, I already know what the conduit's for. This guy's fucking out of his mind. <laughs> He's like, if you don't oh care, could gosh. you just take this and just beat the fuck out of me with it? Like, <laughs> I'm horrified. Oh, oh my gosh. Now, I'm, <laughs> I know this is probably a lot of people's fantasy. Like, that sounds like a blast, right? But I'm standing here. I'm 19, 20 years old, and I'm holding a big piece of three-quarter to an inch piece of conduit. It's like five or six foot long. And when somebody's not attacking you, and they're not doing anything, yeah. to, and he's just standing there like, all right, bro. Do it. He's just standing there. <laughs> it's really hard to hit somebody as hard as you. He just wanted me to beat the shit out of him just with this piece of conduit. But I keep thinking, like, you know, you still got to work for four hours after we get done here. Like, yeah, what are you going to tell people? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and people have probably seen him yeah. you know, in the previous four hours just wandering around fine. <laughs> you went to lunch and then you came back and you look like you've been in a car wreck. What is and Kent's crying? <laughs> so he and I ended up. I was like, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to do this, man. I, I don't want to be because I was not stupid. Uh, like I know a con, a piece of conduit is going to leave very sp- particular. They're like, oh, this guy's claiming self defense. <laughs> the fella's knuckles aren't bar shaped. Like what is all these wounds look exactly the same? So. I didn't do it. He ended up getting another guy to do it. And I was telling my Seriously? He got yeah, 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 to yeah. He it. got another guy oh. to do it. And uh, I ended up telling my buddies about it that I that I hung out with all the time. And they were like, dude, I would have beat the fuck out of him with that thing. Like, <laughs> so that's uh, – and I hope Melvin – maybe Melvin's a listener today. I don't know. I hope he's doing well. He probably isn't. But I, he, he was in, uh, deep in his heart – he was a good guy that just really yeah. his his life really he ended up in a bad spot after having some yeah going through some bad stuff so yeah well that's that's I know people like that good heart and you just kind of watch their life unfold like uh like that guy from that one movie mm, yeah I had to kill him mm. Some call it a Kaiser blade, or some call it a lawnmower blade. I call it a Kaiser blade. And what sucked about this guy was he was extremely intelligent. Like, mm. from a from a completely heterosexual point of view, a good-looking dude, young, really tall, muscular. Like, if he could just get his shit together, yeah. he really could have been whatever he wanted to be. Like, literally anything. It was really sad. Like it makes me sad right now thinking about it. Now that you mention it, let me ask you this: So I worked at HP at one point, 
And me and a lot of other people that worked there, and I think there's still some people that work there that may feel this way, that you kind of see that your job becomes very HP-like. You, like there's a whole lot of HP-ness to your job that won't translate to another job. It's very specific, right? Yes. Like you're, you're dealing with HP code or you're dealing with HP product or whatever. And you could be there a decade and their benefits are great, all this stuff and everything. And then you start hearing about like on the other side of the wall – that department just got outsourced to India. And you're like, ah, oh, crap. And suddenly you realize you kind of have golden handcuffs on because this is great as long as it lasts. But once you get out, you're just, you're almost not employable anywhere else because there's no trans translation of your current skill set. Did you find that to be the case in the military as well? Like people went over there and became professional warriors, professional soldiers. And then when they, they get put back in the civilian population, it's like there's there's a they have a challenge because they're they're so professional at doing those things that when they're in the normal civilian population, it's hard to see translation of those skills. I came out and went right into being a a guard at a jail, a, a deputy. Hmm. So okay. there was that aspect of I guess tension. And that kind of helped, mm -hmm. which sounds ridiculous, I know, but it kind of helped having a job where there was tension. And, you know, like, because you, then you don't feel like you don't feel like it's unnecessary, I guess, like this tension that you're right. Because the job you had before was the was just an eternally tense job. There was always eternal tension. Yeah. Well, I always explain and nobody I'm not the first person to say this, but a deployment is is people think that, you know, you go to Afghanistan or whatever. As a grunt, it's just nonstop death and destruction and and bullets flying and IEDs. That's not what a deployment is, even the worst ones. It's long, long periods of boredom followed by brief, horrible periods of absolute fear. And then uh -huh. a long – and that, I think, is what causes the PTSD is the – just these so polar opposite – that and they could change in a, yeah. in a heart in a heartbeat. You know, you can go from relaxing right. on a cot to all hell is raining. Like so, yeah. So whenever I went to the jail and started working at the jail, there was not nearly as dangerous, but there was that aspect of everything can be chill one minute and then you're in a fist fight the next. So there is that kind of polar opposite of because that's the way inmates like they explode. So you don't know when it's going to happen. There's mm -hmm. people that are mentally unstable there. There's all these factors, so you don't know mm -hmm. what's going to happen or when it's going to happen. So I think that kind of helped with my transition is having this new thing to stress or to have anxiety over. Uh -huh. And I think what happens to a lot of guys is they get out and they, they're in they're in red, their little needle yes. is in red, code red. But there's no mm -hmm. reason for it to be in red, and that's right. I know I don't know if any of this makes sense, but that's how I feel. No, it totally does. In a normal job, you're giving training that. You show up, you wake up, you get dressed, you go to work, and you use that training, that little bit of training, and it kind of develops over time and everything like that. The training you get as a as a soldier is unlike any training a human ever gets in – it's like the, the muscle memory that we need you to have is when 
everything goes wrong and everyone is running away from this thing, this catastrophe, your muscle memory will tell you to run into the catastrophe. And then you become a professional at doing that. And then you go back home to Kentucky where nothing happens. And then you're expected to just kind of sit on this training and this emotional trigger that has been built into you. And you're never going to use it again. Ever. And they, they expect it. It'll just like fade. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and not to mention, and I'm, I've never been in the military, so I could be wrong, but not to mention, I think that, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it drives a lot of people. They're, they're like, I need that now. Talk about jumping out of airplanes or whatever. I, I need, I'm wired to expect the world to go to hell in a handbasket and it never does. And so I don't know what to do with myself anymore, you know? Yeah. And that's all. And I think that's where a lot of the anxiety. I'm sorry. We just got off on a tangent. We should have been, but, but this is, I think this is a good conversation. (laughs) We, it's fun. I think that's where a lot of for, and probably what was going on with Melvin. Uh, you know, one of the dancers at the dance at the ballet studio there, right? Yes, the anxiety is still there, but the threat is gone. Yes. So, and and the problem is trying to figure out how to make that feeling go away. The best the way the way that yeah. I used to explain it to a psychiatrist that I talked to was uh, it's a feeling of somebody walking behind you and they've got a revolver, right? And this mm-hmm. is and and they've got one round in it. And they're spinning that cylinder, right? And then they're locking it shut. And yeah. they're pointing it at the back of your head and they're pulling the trigger. All the time. All the time. 100% of the time. Oh, my God. That's the kind of anxiety that, you know, you feel in your chest. Like, But there's nobody following you and putting a gun to your head and pulling the trigger with one round. But you just feel like you're playing Russian roulette yeah. 24-7. That's the best way to explain it. Yeah, well, the best case scenario is... And it's honestly, I think it's an unrealistic expectation is just that soldiers are expected to come home and have that reflex fade. Best case scenario would be, like you said, you get a job at a prison or somewhere which lets you sort of leverage those skills, but in, you know, in a humane or legal way. And I think that's a reason a lot of them end up being police officers, probably. Mm -hmm. And, well, and prison guards. A lot of them end up. Yeah. Good conversation. This is good. This is. But we're talking about the Pappen Sorry. sisters today, and neither one of them were Iraq <laughs> veterans. So, <laughs> okay, they weren't well, Iraq you know, veterans all because. Uh, well, the first one was was born in 1902, so that didn't even, was America well, and Iraq that's a in good 1902, segue right there. <laughs> I don't think it was even Iraq in 1902. <laughs> so. Well. And I believe this is the longest we've went on an episode without ever – we're 40 minutes in right now, and we haven't even talked about what the subject for today is. <laughs> so sorry for all the listeners that we lost. Today we're talking about the Pappen sisters who, like I said, were not Iraq veterans. Neither no, neither OIF or OEF. Neither one of them fought in Iraq. Um, so the Pappen sisters were the – they were responsible for probably – the most, one of, if not the most, bloody set of murders that has ever happened in France. And we know the French aren't known for any kind of spine, so that's not saying much probably, but... <laughs> and I'm kidding. I'm joking. I No, yeah. There's that... Have you heard that one joke, though? It's a, a rifle for sale on eBay. It's a French military rifle. It says... 
uh, French military rifle for sale, never fired, dropped once. <laughs> you know, while while researching this, I got I, I realized I'd always heard that old stereotype that the French are the French are cowards, right? And it turns out that's yeah, that's that's but they're not completely not true. That's true. They they yes. gave a lot during both both war, world wars and and they were they were badasses on the front lines especially during world war 1. Yes, that's true. So it's completely true but I still never really came to a clear concise reason as to where that stereotype kind of came from. There's a lot of like speculation but I think it's just America's Americans kind of uh bumping their gums and running their mouth. I think it's because we've talked so much I won't get into it but if you look up the Maginot line yeah, which is a, a big fortress that they build across the to kind of deflect the German advances during during World War II. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of give you a little bit of context, but um, but other than that, no, I think you're right. I, I think it's a, a terrible um, what would you call it? stereotype? Yes. So the Pappen sisters were born to Gustave and Clemence Pappen, and uh, those two were married in October of 1901. Now they had gotten married after Gustave, the father, began suspecting that Clemence. The mother was cheating on him with her employer, and it was a it was a rumor around the town. Everybody was, hey, you know, did you hear? Did you hear Clemence is sucking the cobbler's dick? He's like, oh, <laughs> damn it! We should get married. Damn it, Clemence! <laughs> Always sucking dicks. So in February of 1902, the oldest sister of the Pappins. Now this one isn't included in in the murders in any way. She ended up. Doing pretty well for herself. Her name is Amelia. She's born February 1902. However, Gustav continues to suspect that Clemence is cheating. And uh, after more rumors begin circulating, he, he he decides the best thing for him and his family to do is pack up their bags and move out of town and get his family and get his wife away from the penises there. Just get her because that's the best. You just got to get those penis. You got to get away from those penises in Le Mans. And that's where they lived in Le Mans, yeah. France. Free your life of those baguettes, those human baguettes. Exactly, exactly. So Clemence, she says she would rather die than move from Le Mans. And Gustave goes, Mm. okay. And then he becomes an alcoholic, and that's how he handled that. (laughs) That's great. I guess she's just going to keep blowing good dudes. I better drink. (laughs) And uh, it's at this point that their marriage begins to deteriorate. Uh, and I got to say, really? marriages, marriages today, they don't stick it out the way they did back then. This is really noble of these two. No. That she's just going around yeah. and blowing the barber and everybody, and everybody tells Clements about it because he's a <laughs> cuck, and and they stuck it out, and that's 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 admirable. It is. It's that's two. That's two diehards right there. Nowadays, somebody's married for you know two weeks, and and the the husband is like, "Did you send a?" A wave emoji to to this guy, and she's like, "Yeah," and he's like, "I want a divorce. We're done. We're done. I want a divorce, Brenda." Yeah, <laughs> well, I correct myself. That's not two diehards. He was pretty diehard in that he stayed with her. You know, replaced his anger with alcoholism. She was more like a blowhard. Yeah, we're gonna find out later. Clements is very, what is the word I'm looking for? Strong minded. Very. She's a mm. she's a steamroller. She's kind of a cunt. Okay. Okay, <laughs> and I hate using that word, but you're gonna see. I don't. I it's, don't normally like that it's word. It's a French word, but it's a so fitting word good. for her because she is a really bad person. She is not a good person. Okay, uh, and, and everybody's going to agree. I know. There, I know people just recoiled from their 
but you're gonna give me give me ten minutes. You're gonna agree here very shortly. So we had two listeners left after our Iraq conversation. Yeah, we just lost <laughs> the last one. The only one left is the serial killer that listening to the show just to get ideas. So welcome. He's getting ready to get a bunch of them now. Christine, now there were two sisters, there, there were three sisters total, but only two of them took part in this horrific murder, and that's Christine and Leah. Now, Christine was born March 18th, 1905. Leah was born six years later on September 15th, 1911. Now, from the get-go, these two had a very strong bond. They never really were all that close to Amelia. They, it was kind of like Christine and Leah and then Amelia. because So Amelia was kind of set apart from the other two. They had a very strong bond from the get-go. They spent their early years in villages around Le Mans in western France. You know, Clemence is just – she steps out in the morning and starts – she can smell penis, and then she just starts stumbling off into the streets. to. And Gustave, like, sees her go past the window, and he, like, starts freaking out and grabs a beer to wash his, like, pain away. <laughs> there she goes. She's on the scent. So they moved to Le Mans, but she said she would rather die than move to Le Mans. So did she, did, did she die? No, she would rather die than move from Le Mans. They already lived in Le Mans. Oh, I see. From, so they stayed, they in, stayed Le in Le Mans. Yes. Okay. And one more question for you. Okay. Do you know anything about the race at Le Mans? Uh, they're all white, to, to my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> I I meant the I meant the I feel like our roles just reversed for a second there. <laughs> I meant the race like car race. Oh. Do you know anything about the car race there? I don't. No. But okay. I mean it's good that you asked that question cuz now everybody knows. I guess well now we've clarified, you know, the the uh, genotype and phenotype yeah. of the people in Le Mans and also Fun fact to know and share about the race. So the race in Le Mans is 24 hours long. But do you know why it's 24 hours long? Why? A lot of people think it's the endurance of the driver, which is partially true. But when Le Mans started the race, it was early in the car's history of the car. So 24 hours was like the ultimate test of the vehicle to see if the vehicle could even survive for 24 hours at this high rate of demand of speed and on the, you know, the torture on the engine and tires and everything. So that's why it was 20. And that's nothing today. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so now it's more of a test of the drivers because they'll hit 400 kilometers an hour. Yeah. That's the, the record speed in Le Mans is four. I mean, I, you imagine that at like hour 23 and you're still pounding 400 kilometers an hour. Anyway, these drivers are so dialed in that there's times at night, middle of the night, they're still driving and it could be raining, but they are so dialed into the course that in addition to small markers on the road, which say, you know, that there's a turn coming or whatever, they actually count between corners to kick their reflexes into gear to turn turn when they're supposed to. So they're not just looking for visuals. They're actually counting in their heads to make sure they trigger their turns at the right time, which blows my mind. And then this last year was the first year in Le Mans history where they had physical drivers and they also had gamers. There's like a Le Mans version of e-gaming now that is actually qualified. They qualified for the podium. So e-gamers now are driving Le Mans virtually 
and then they're they're winning and they they get to be on the podium with Le Mans drivers like the actual drivers it's the weirdest thing i hate the future really i really hate it <laughs> uh, i hate it so much <laughs> You've got these athletes because that's what being a race car driver oh, yeah. is. Nobody, nobody realizes the physical shape that you have to be in to endure that heat oh. and and those G forces, the G forces. Like, yeah, you have to be in good physical. And now you've got these nineteen-year-old curly-headed losers that eat Cheetos, and they're like, "I'm on the podium." Who's a famous Le Mans race car driver? And they're just standing there next to him like, hey, dude, check out this callus on my thumb. I yeah. got, oh. It's like 370 oh. Gs. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, the, the winner is France, who's like, fucking hate these people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, by all accounts, the sisters had a, a horrible childhood. Absolutely terrible. From both ends, you know, you got an abusive alcoholic father, and then you have an abusive not alcoholic but penis addicted mother and they they just treated them like shit the mom was terrible the dad was terrible everybody was terrible and at 10 years old amelia was caught getting raped by her father by clements so oh. amelia the oldest sister is 10 years old she's caught by the mother uh being raped by the father uh this is when they get a divorce but <sighs> amelia sends clements off to Bon Pasteur Catholic Orphanage because she believes that Amelia was seduced her father and it was her fault. Mm. So uh, how a 10-year-old seduces any 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 man, let alone her father, into, into making him rape her is, is – but that's why I said I think everybody will agree shortly that Clements is really a – if there ever was a word, if that word ever described anybody, it's this, this woman because she's really a cut. Oh, wow. And the dad needs to put on his knees and executed. But so they send Amelia off to a to a Bon Pasteur Catholic orphanage for seducing her father. Christine, the the second oldest sister, goes to live with her aunt, who was Gustave's sister, the father's. And then Clement sends Leah off to live with her great uncle. Now Clement is alone. That's what she wanted. She wanted to be alone. The house is finally quiet. She can eat baguettes. And, Paint pictures of the Eiffel Tower and smoke little bitty cigarettes stuck on the end of sticks. Practice being a mime in peace. All the French stuff. She can do all that stuff now in peace. Now, what these children were to Clements from the get-go was financial security. Mm, okay. What she wanted to do was bring them home when they were 18 years old. And then because something to do with the way the, France, the, the French did it was they would send these women out when they got older. And somehow the parents got the wages. Which I still haven't figured out. I don't know why, why it works like that. So what Clements has essentially done is send all these children off to be raised until the time comes to reap the financial benefits of having three girls. That's that's I what see. she's doing. Now that's terrible. Clements finally pulls Christine back from her aunt, who was Gustav's sister, and then sends her to the Bon Pasteur Catholic Orphanage as well with Amelia. Now. I think the reason she did this was so that they could develop household skills. She wanted she wanted them all to be maids so that she could make their wages. So she wanted her to learn kind of home economics type skills, how to cook, mm. how to clean, how to do laundry, all all that stuff, right? I wonder if also that if Christine was living with her aunt, I'm sure that there was a law in place where she could have uh like changed allegiance or 
said my aunt is my parent and then the aunt would receive the financial benefit after 18 you know so if she what's that thing when you oh yeah you mean like it would just naturally switch over the yeah probably because you'll notice here that's what she does is she pulls them back right before they it's all well planned by this by this this big old horny turd that's terrible so while at the orphanage, Christine and Amelia become they become super close, but Amelia eventually becomes of age and decides to become a nun and joins a convent. So she kind of runs off and joins a convent. Huh. This really pisses off Clements. She's not happy about this. That's one of her her three paychecks that she had banked on, you know, living off of. And around this time, Christine, the other sister, decides she wants to be a nun as well. You can tell she kind of is trying to follow in Amelia's footsteps. But whenever Clements hears about this. Yeah. She's like, "Uh uh-uh, immediately pulls Christine out of the orphanage. And that's when she throws her out there, puts her out there as a maid and turns her into a housekeeper and starts drawing money off Christine, the mother does. Now, she starts moving her from house to house, trying to make as much money as possible. She'll she'll put her in one household, figure out what they're paying. And uh, and then if it's not enough, she'll put her, she'll change her from that household to another one, trying to get the most bang for her buck. Out of this daughter. It's also around this time that the mom brings Leia back from her great uncle, great uncle, and puts her out there with Christine. So now the two girls are working together, and this is when they start rekindling that bond that they had formed when they were younger. Mm. So she's got these two girls out there making money for, her, shaking it for, her, pimping them out, and this is when uh, Clements takes on the the pimp name uh, Big Mama C. <laughs> and I'm, I may have made that up. Okay. <laughs> full full disclosure, I may have made. Nobody called her Big Mama C, but just because I think it's kind of funny, that's what I'm going to refer to her as for the rest of this episode. I like Big it. Mama C. We also called her the C word before, so it might fit either way. Yeah, that's fitting. It's fitting. <clears throat> it's fitting. Like I said, Christina and Leah become inseparable again. They don't, but however, they kind of weird everybody out. Everybody, they make everybody uncomfortable that they're around because they don't talk to each other in public. But they also don't talk to anybody else, but it still seems like they can communicate somehow just through eye movement, facial expressions. It's obvious they're extremely close, and people start thinking that they're telepathic. Mm. It's basically two Carries, two Stephen King versions of Carrie walking around together, mm-hmm. and they, they can communicate telepathically, people think, and they just make people really uncomfortable because they're kind of creepy. Yeah, They're cold, they're distant. And they're creepy, and they're together, and they look a lot alike. They look a lot. If you look at pictures of these two young ladies, they didn't have a lot going for them in the aesthetics department, but they did look a lot alike. That's creepy. They're just walking around, making people uncomfortable. And In 1926, Christine scores a permanent job as a living servant in a big mansion at 6 Rue Briere, Le Mans. And that's the, that's the address. You can look it up on Google Maps, 6 Rue, R-U-E. Bruyere, B-R-U-Y-E-R-E. And the mansion that she stayed in, I call this a mansion. That's kind of, that's what everybody in other podcasts, if you listen, that's what they kind of refer to it as. And it may have been a mansion, a mansion at the time, but it's, it's not anything super, it's three stories, but it's kind of connected on all sides to other houses. It just looks like a kind of a large house, but everybody refers to it as a mansion. And, this this mansion was owned by uh, Reen Lancelin, who was a retired lawyer, and he lived there with his wife, Leone, and his grown-up daughter, Genevieve. Is the name Reen, is that like René? René, yes. I am from the South, <laughs> and we just say things the way they look. Mm-hmm. So it is the René. Yes. Rene. 
Oh, hey, we were talking before. I'm sorry, really quick. I have a joke for you. We were talking about halfway houses. I forgot to tell you a joke. What do you call a milk cow that gets run over by a train? What? Half and half. So the job offered free room. Where am I, you fucker? Um, the Christine gets this job, and it has a lot of been. Damn it! Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Christine gets this job. It has a. It, it's got a lot of benefits. It has a. It comes with a free room, so she gets to, she gets a room of her own and and food on top of the wages that she receives. Uh, and she got the job despite the fact that she had bad reviews from previous employers. Hmm. Uh, one of her references said that she was arrogant and thought some household jobs were beneath her, which makes me wonder kind of like what that job interview looked like. I, I can just imagine Leone's like, uh, Christine, I'm, you know, I'm looking over your resume here and it says, says you're kind of an arrogant twat waffle that thinks you're too good to clean the pubes out of the shower drain. Is, is that true? And Christine's like, no. And the Lancelins are like, all right, then you're hired. <laughs> and that had to, because she did not have good references. Or maybe the Lancelin husband, Rene, maybe he knew their mom. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she did. A, she maybe did some tugging. To, she, she had some pull, had so some to speak. <laughs> Christine, though, quickly kind of proves her references incorrect. She gets the job at the mansion located in Le Mans, France, and somehow convinces Leona to hire as a chambermaid and is a good worker against what the references the, her references said. She, she's a happy worker, and they're very happy with Christine. And around this time, after Christine kind of proves herself, she convinces Leone, the wife, Lancelin, Monsieur Lancelin, mm -hmm. Leone, to hire her sister Leah as a chambermaid as well. And because Christine is such a good worker, Leone brings Le Leah in. So like... You know, they figure birds of a feather flock together. If I've got one one good worker here and she's saying this, that her sister's a good worker too, then I'll bring her on as well. And they agreed. They bring, and once again, Leah and Christine are together in the same house. And they had this premium room that they got to, got to share together that had a balcony that overlooked the city with free food, you know, free, free room and board. And just like Leonie had hoped, Leah is also a good worker, even though they kind of considered Leah to be the less intelligent and quieter of the sisters. Mm. So Leah is kind of like the uh, – have you ever seen – have you ever seen uh, the Goonies? Yeah. You know Sloth from the Goonies? Uh -huh. Leah is kind of like the sloth of the two. <laughs> She's got that one ear that keeps moving up and down. Oh, you guys. Girls, lunch is ready. <laughs> She's like, baby, Ruth. <laughs> you want ice cream? Rocky Road. <laughs> Leah sounds dumb. Leah's the stupid okay. one. No. Christina and Leah worked long hours, and this is rough. 14, 14 hour days, six days a week, with only one half day off per week. So six 14s and one seven. And on Sundays, they got one half day off. So they, so their seven hour work day wow. was like their day off. They're like, oh, I only have to work one American normal work day almost today, <laughs> you know. Like. <laughs> the break. Now, they each made 300 francs a month, which equals $55 United States, which translates in 2021 to $1,093 a month today, 
or a little over $250 a week. Hmm. Now, I know I just threw a lot of information at you. Let me do, let me say that again. 300 francs a month, that 300 francs equals $55 US a month. And then you add in, you know, inflation to 2021. What they were making then was equivalent to $1,093 a month today or a little over 250 bucks a week. So hmm. not great money. But when your room is paid for and your food is covered, mm-hmm. not bad. No, that's not bad. Yeah. yeah. So like I said, they were good workers. They kept to themselves. They were quiet. And they seemed to have no interest outside of the mansion. Like they, they didn't really they didn't really have hobbies. And they spend most of their free time in their room together doing God knows what. And I like to imagine they just I know this song wasn't out at the time, but I like to imagine they're just sitting in there kind of listening to that song. <laughs> She drives me crazy by the fine young cannibals. You know? She drives me crazy. Ooh, ooh, like no one else. She drives me crazy. I can't help myself. Tell me why. Because I, when you said that you just hung out in their room all the time, I thought, oh. How quaint, how, how quaint, how sweet. I, in my head, it was always, I've got a brand new pair of roller skates. You've got a brand new key. <laughs> I don't know. I love that song. My wife plays that all the time. Oh I thought we were the only people that knew that song. <laughs> but I like to imagine when they're sitting in there in that room with the door locked. I know that song wasn't even out, here, out during the time, but I like to imagine it. It's not playing loud, right? It's playing real low. <laughs> And they're just not talking. They're just communicating to each other. Not... <laughs> Three SPN. They're just. That's like, how I feel mm. about you, Christine. <laughs> yeah. And then Leah's like, "Hey, you guys!" <laughs> By the way, have you ever seen the music video to that to that song? To I've got a brand new ro- pair of roller skates. No, that video is great. Yeah. The music video to the Fine Young Cannibals. She drives me crazy. It is unintentionally the most disturbing music video <laughs> of all time. I've seen Rob Zombie videos. That are less disturbing than that video. I'll have to look it up now. Sorry, because you're going to have nightmares tonight. <laughs> this shit will scar you. It's so creepy. Uh, like I said, they just hang out in the mansion, spend most of the time in the room together. But they did go to church on Sundays. And the only other thing that they enjoyed other than spending time together in the room with the door locked was occasionally visiting a local fortune teller. Oh, that's not weird at all. Which is, yeah, that's kind of weird, but... At one point, this fortune teller tells them that they had been together in a past life as man and woman, and they were romantically involved. Whoa. So they said, one of you was a man, one of you was the woman, and you were together. And you guys were Ugh. just really going down on each other and all that stuff, you know. Just <laughs> just like your mom. Yeah, just like you were doing what your mom does every day to strangers but to each other. Okay. <laughs> now, they took this to heart and just started scissoring like crazy. I'm kidding. <laughs> The hymns are just blaring in my head right now. <laughs> Come thou found of every blessing. She drives me crazy. Oh. I do like to imagine that the sisters are back there in their room just smacking their fucking vaginas together violently, right? Oh, and meanwhile, that fraud of a fortune teller is is smoking a cigarette with her smoking a cigarette with her friends and being like you guys are never going to guess what I told these sisters today. <laughs> Something just came to me right 
amazing grace. How sweet, how sweet the <laughs> sound. Uh, okay. Hey, uh, speaking of, uh, f- they sound like Mary Kate and Ashley. You know those creepy weirdos? Oh, the ones from Full House. Yeah, that are that are like somehow. Yeah, they, from, they do not look like they're doing well. No, it's like they it's like they were little cute babies, and then they got thrown into a washer with Tim Burton, and they came out, and they're like Tim Burton <laughs> characters now. They're just like always looking around, like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's weird. I think that was Tim Allen that you did there, not Tim <laughs> Burton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, weird. Uh, but speaking of France. Uh, have you heard of the Bogdanoff twins? The bo- bo- Bogdanoff. What? The Bogdanoff twins. No, I haven't. Yeah. I have not. They're from France. When they were younger, they were like TV heartthrobs. These two twins, they're like super attractive and everything. And then as they got older, they got into that weird thing where um, you go and get just an unreasonable amount of plastic surgery done on your face. Uh, but they did it together. So every time one went in for surgery, the other had the same thing done, like cheek injections, chin injections, all this. They ended up, they look, they're still alive, but they look like ventriloquist dummies now. It's amazing. Like they look like uh, the, the main guy from Saw. Like their jaws look like they don't connect to their face. And Jigsaw. Yeah, like Jigsaw. It's weird. And they've kind of just, you know, they were. Actually, I want to correct something. That's Billy the Puppet. Yes, Jigsaw was the killer in the franchise. Right. Good. That would have bothered me the rest of the episode if I didn't correct that. So. <laughs> and in the edit, I'm going to cut out your correction just to just to bother no. you. <laughs> no. But they, so what you're saying is these these they they looked they looked embalmed even though they were still alive. Yes. They, they looked they look dead already. Yeah, and then they're in their 50s now, and they just look really weird and shiny where they shouldn't be shiny and puffy where they shouldn't be puffy. And they've kind of come and gone into public eye. But not right now, in 2018, actually, they kind of popped up again because they got, they got uh, charged with stealing $800,000 from a quote-unquote vulnerable person in France. Weird. Weird people. Anyway. That's all I know. Why does plastic surgery make the shin so the skin so shiny? Um, I think it's because you're not supposed to be able to inject stuff under your skin and have it actually survive. That would be my guess. It's sort of like a tire, you know. Oh. You fill it with air, and the tire does weird things, like gets hard. So Renee and Leone were happy with the sisters for many years, and. Renault. Mm. That's probably how you pronounce it. Renault. Renee. Renault. (laughs) And Leone were happy with the sisters for many years. Leone eventually finds out that the girls have been sending their money home to their mom, though. And this really rubs her the wrong way. She's not happy with this. Now, it seems like at some point the sisters kind of start looking at Leone as a mother figure, Mm. almost. Because for a long time, it seems like she really does have their best interests in mind. She she takes care of them the best she can. Because, and when Leone finds out that they're sending all their money home to this wretched bitch, mm-hmm. Big Mama C, right. <laughs> right, she makes them stop. She's like, hey, that's over with. Oh. That's done. You, you guys are keeping your money. I'm paying you. I'm not paying her. Wow. You take your money. You do what you guys need to do with it. So Leone forces the girls to write their mother a letter telling her that those days are over. It's, it's done with. 
this gravy train just left the station. You got to go find a job elsewhere. And I mean, that's pretty that's pretty admirable, I think, of her mm-hmm. to take take that on herself because the girls didn't have that kind of spine to do to stand up to their mother. Yeah, well, and legally, it's probably a little bit risky to do that too. I would think. Oh yeah, because this is kind of the norm at the time, you know. Yeah. Now more years go by. But unfortunately, the sisters start getting too comfortable. They start kind of slacking in their work. Leone starts criticizing their work. And what she does is she begins kind of assault, maybe a heavy word, but she starts pinching the girls when, when things are wrong. You know, she, so if, if, she finds, if she finds they missed a, a spot of some dust on the, on the stair railing, she, start, she pinches them until they get it, like, almost like Caesar Milan, the dog whisperer. You know how he's like poke. poke. <laughs> she's like <laughs> that. It bothered me. Oh, I'd have a hard time with that. She keeps pinching them until they get it, or if they drop something, it pss, 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 mm. pinching and hissing. <laughs> and Freaking understandably, this the, the sisters don't like this. Hmm. Uh, I would that would not make me happy. I would be very that would that would make my blood boil. I think every time something. <laughs> Yeah. But after a few months, Leah tells Christine that the next time Leone pinches her, she's going to defend herself. <laughs> and I got news for y'all. Boy, howdy, does she. <laughs> she, she really does. Now, on February 2nd, 1993, not 93, that was 70 years. <laughs> after- <laughs> Fast forward 70 years. <laughs> so, Leone doesn't pinch them again for 70 years. And... <laughs> But they never forgot. February 2nd, 1933. Everything, the, the shit hits the fan. Now, they had been working there for Leone and the, and the Lancelins for seven years at the time. On, on this day, Leone and her daughter Genevieve go out shopping in town. Now, Vernon, the dad, was supposed to meet them later at a friend's house for dinner. They were going to meet up and, and have dinner at their friend's house. And when Vernon... Gets there, they never show up. So he's obviously concerned, he gets worried, and he goes out in the town to look for them with his son-in-law. So him and his son-in-law, they go out searching for Leone and Genevieve. Mm -hmm. Obviously, he doesn't find them, and this is when he goes back to the mansion. And him and his son-in-law, they get to the mansion around 6.30, only to find that all the lots are off inside. And the only light on isn't even a light bulb. It's a candle light, and it's, and it's on from the servant's chamber up on the third floor. So the only light on in the entire mansion is on the third floor, and it's coming from the sister's bedroom. This is obviously a little concerning to him, so he tries all the doors, but they're locked. And he also finds out his key didn't work. Hmm. So instead of having a spine, like, as we mentioned, all the French do, mm-hmm. There's a possibility they could be actively being murdered in there, like, like, right? Like as right, yeah. And, and instead of going in, I don't. I know it, it would be best to have police, but if I come to my house and the lights are off and I suspect my family's in there and they could be in danger, I'm not going to spend the time. And this, they didn't have phones. Yeah, they didn't have cars. Yeah, he'd have to run to get. So help, he's right? just, yeah, yeah. I'm going in the house, mm-hmm. and if I catch an axe to the face, then whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I agree. Uh, so he leaves, he goes and gets the police. The police, Renan, and his son-in-law arrive back at the house around 7.30. So an hour an hour after he had initially got to the mansion. An hour has passed. The police go around the back. There's kind of a walkway. If, you, if, you're, if you're looking on Google, Street Views, on Google Street Views at the house, you can still see this to this day. 
So if you're standing here on Google Streets looking at the house, you go left down the street, take a right at that street, you can see the gate where they jumped over. Mm, okay. To this day, it's all, all it's almost completely all unchanged. Wow, Everything that's is amazing. It's really interesting. Uh, so they they hop a fence, and uh, they they try all the doors out back. They're all locked except for one, and this is how the police get into the house. Hmm. Now, what they find is inside is I'll tell you what. Uh, let's let's let Jack Luna walk us through the walk us through the house with the police. Ooh, that's a good idea. Okay, here he comes. February 2nd, 1933. The sun fights off sleep, winking brightly, then seeming to go under, before winking brightly again, as dusk slowly begins to creep in over the row houses in this affluent and romantic section of northern France. Monsieur Lancelin is perplexed. His wife, his daughter, must be inside the house. He has just returned home from the only other place that could have been. The dinner they were scheduled to be attending, together, right now. Though it doesn't look like that will be how things shake out. Lancelin himself is beginning to shake, tremble ever so slightly. And for the second time this evening, he retreats from the brick facade of his home, joining his equally perplexed son-in-law on the street to take in the odd circumstances together. The front door has been bolted from the inside, and the first and second floors are in pitch darkness. There is candlelight glowing out from the maid's quarters, the Pappin sister's bedroom, on the third floor. The two men call out from the cramped cobblestone street to the illuminated windows, but the building stares silently back at them, eyes blazing and blank, reminiscent of the Pappin sisters' own eyes, in fact, door like their identically pursed mouths, bolted shut as if to keep an unspeakable secret, trapped within. Monsieur Lancelin and his son-in-law consider breaking in, but there is no other door or window accessible from the cramped street. They consider climbing up the face and breaking a window, but that seems a bit desperate. They could circle around the block and attempt to break in through the back alley, and that is just what they are going to do when they both acknowledge that something doesn't feel right. Something feels wrong, truth be told. No, the men admit, something is wrong. So they decide to drive from the darkening scene to the local police house and soon return with an officer. After another brief round of shouts at the windows that fall dead before the now ominous abode, the three men decide to circle around as neighbors begin to open shutters to see what the fuss is about, the sun barely providing enough light now to create shadows on the street. At the first opportunity to get around the fortress of married units, they jump over a garden wall, soon managing to gain entry to the Lancelin residence through the back side door that had been left open, sparing the house a broken molar. The light switches are of no use, the power later found to have been shorted out in the oddest of ways. So the officer uses a flashlight to navigate their way in. 
More calls for the girls as they clear the first floor. But there's no response. No sign of life. And it's not until they begin to ascend the staircase to the second floor that they are finally free to express their anxieties. The men shout at one another as the beam illuminates a disembodied eyeball staring down at them from halfway up the stairs. Stairs. Stairs everywhere as they look frantically into each other's eyes, then up to the one above, then back to one another's. Before the officer remembers, he's not a child in a haunted theme park and forces his legs to move up to the second floor, gun drawn and pointed into the shaky light ahead. Light that soon washes over the bodies of two women laid just before the second floor landing. Their eyes have been gouged out from their faces, faces that have been bludgeoned to a meaty paste. Teeth are strewn across the hardwood. The mother and daughter's skirts are up over their waists, legs and buttocks sliced up like chicken drumsticks, marinating in what later will be discovered to be menstrual blood from Monsieur Lancelin's daughter, his son-in-law's bride. A sickening scene, terrifying under the flashlight's glow, and the officer decides it's best to retreat and call for backup. But we stay. We stay right here as the light retreats down the stairs, as the rough sobs and wretches begin to overwhelm the men once back out into the night air. There's movement upstairs. There's life up there. We're certain. And as we ascend to the final floor, our eyes are drawn to a single point of warm light. It is streaming out from a keyhole, washing the wall behind us much like the blood seemed to clean up the rough floor below. The officer was wrong. This place isn't like a haunted house. It is one. The spirits of the dead seem to scream from just beyond. They propel us, force us forward. We can't go back. It's too heavy down there. So let's move ahead then to the light in the keyhole and take a peek. This is hard to see. I mean, it's clear what we're looking at, but still, it's hard to see. These sisters wrapped around each other on the bed, moaning softly, eyes fixed to one another's as if communicating telepathically. They grind and writhe like serpents, as if their bodies are in the way, as if the more they slide against each other, the deeper their eyes fix, the less they are physically here, and the more they are one. There's something beautiful and terrible about the act all at once. And now we are retching. As the caress intensifies, as the candlelight blows out from the Pap and sisters' deviant dance, effectively putting out the house's eyes, and blessedly sparing our own. And we are back. We are back. And let's do a quick recap on the, the horror show that, that Jack just took us through. So, like I said, the, the police find entry. They search the first floor. They start making their way up to the second floor. And on the staircase, on the staircase there, what is that? Do you hear that? No, I don't hear that. Nope. 
Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Weird. Maybe maybe the twins like uh, finding cannibals. Who knows? <laughs> weird. <laughs> that is odd. Yeah, it's weird. Anyways, so the the cops are making their way up the steps. They've got they've got their flashlights and about halfway up the staircase, the beam of their light bounces off something shiny. They focus in on it and what they discover up is an eyeball. Oh my gosh. One eyeball with some of the optic nerve till still attached to it just staring back at him. Weird. Those stairs had eyes? Oh, it sounds like a movie. <laughs> no, it was an eye. Not fucking No. Oh, okay. It was an eye, like an eye, a human eye. Oh. A human eye. Creepy. And it was looking right back at him. Now you gotta keep in mind this is a horror show because they're already encapsulated in darkness because <laughs> the electricity isn't working. Oh yeah. It's all dark. Okay. So they already know some shit is awry. Ugh. You know what I mean? Like something, something has went wrong here. Somebody's lost one of their eyes. Mm-hmm. When they get to the top of the landing of the second floor, they find the bodies of Leone and Genevieve, the mother and daughter. They had been stabbed multiple times over and over. Their eyes had been gouged out. Their faces had been beaten into a bloody minced pulp. They were unrecognizable. It looked like... And you can look at a picture of the crime scene here. The bodies are there. It's an old picture, black and white and grainy, but you can see the the kind of damage that it looks like a their their faces look like a bowl of of ground beef. Ah. Bloody ground beef. They just turned yeah. it into a bowl. Ah. Jeez. You know what I mean? Yeah, caved it in. Yes. Just caved their entire face in. Ugh. Now they had also been flipped over and their rear ends. And the back of their legs, so their asses and the back of their legs, had just been randomly sliced up. Just all sliced up. Kind of like Luca Magnata yeah. did to that. Mm-hmm. Just random slashes up and down the legs and on yeah. the rear, on the ass. Just like right. a lazily kind of with the with the uh, scout knife. Stab, 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 stab. Cut, cut. Yes. Just, That's weird. That video was so odd. It was, yeah. Was I didn't. The way he, it was like watching a a, a five year old play with play doh, yeah, or something. You know what I mean? Like it was so odd, yeah. But that's kind of what it looks like here. So it's a it's a really gruesome, horrible scene. The police continue clearing the mansion, and uh, when they clear every room, they get to the servants' room last, which is like I said on the third floor, and they discover that the door is locked. There are multiple, if, depending on what old newspaper article you read or, or what source you're looking at. Some say they kicked the door in. Some say they got a locksmith to come and unlock the door. So we're just going to go with they kicked it in. It doesn't really matter in the in, in the grand scheme of things. They got in. They okay. either kicked it in. They got a locksmith. And inside the room, they find the sisters laying in bed together, wearing only bathrobes, like hugged up to each other in bed comfortable. Weird. Just really rubbing on each other, just enjoying each other's, just enjoying each other. Yuck. Uh, on the nightstand next to them lays a bloody hammer covered in hair and brain matter. And they, they just point blank ask them. They say, why did you do it? And at this point, they tell the police that Leone and Genevieve tried to beat them because the ironing wasn't finished. And at this point, they confess to the murders. At this time, Christine is 28 years old and Leah, or as we have nicknamed her, Sloth, is 22. <laughs> okay, question. Now, speaking of eyes, not a question, but fun facts. 
I figured you might at this point. I think you you're like, man, I wish he had more coin facts to stretch this out. I do actually. Do yeah, that's me? what. That's exactly that was what was going through my mind. Up. That's I figured. That's what I show up to do this for. I thought so. Do you want me to tell you a so really, go ahead. really yeah, fun point? Yeah, just go ahead. Just okay. go ahead. Okay. Just, yeah. okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Do you know why the the tradition of of putting coins on someone's eyes when they're dead? Do you know why they do that? No, no, I, I don't. They do it. Um, I'm sure you do. Yeah, they do it. The there's a there's a, a mythical uh, historical figure named Sharon. It's C H A R O N, and that is the ferryman that ferries the souls from the this world to the other world, and so the coins are to pay for the ferry ride. That's why they do that. Also, I got one more fun fact for you. This one's straight up the most crazy fun fact. So you you said all yeah, this happened. They always in, are. Uh, yeah, I know. I know. I, I knew you were just waiting. In 1933, which is when all this goes down, right? Guess what? Did you know that there is an American coin that is actually illegal to own? Wow. Yeah, illegal. 1933, double eagle gold coin is illegal to own. They created 500-some-odd of these coins, right? But then they never circulated them in the public, and they were all commissioned to be melted down. And um, when they were going to be melted down, some of the people that were involved with the meltdown, they kept some. They kept them from being melted down. I think it was like not many, like 60, right? And the rest got melted down. A couple of them, two, two of them made it into pu- into the public eye. One of them was sold at auction for over $7 million to a public un- anonymous owner, and the other one has not been found. The rest of those that were saved have been lost to history, so we don't know where they're at, or have made it into a couple American museums. Uh, for viewing, but it's actually illegal to own one of those coins. If you have one, it's illegal. That also, the term illegal is where we got that term illegal because of the double eagle on the gold coin. Ill- illegal. You know, you're like a a self-sustaining fact machine. Yeah. You you go from one fact. And somehow something that makes you think of another fact, mm-hmm. you were like, also the term illegal. Mm-hmm. That, And then it's like at the end of that, you go, oh, and then that connects another yeah. dot to where. Now, I do want to say that the first coin fact that you brought up there about the, the pennies or the coins on the eyes, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. Okay. I enjoyed that fact. And I never enjoy any of your coin facts ever. Okay. Um, Ever do I enjoy them all. Duly noted. So I did enjoy that one, but then you immediately followed it up with one that I didn't enjoy. Mm, the double eagle. So we still broke even. Okay. We broke even at, at best. Okay, but then I told you the, the one about, do you believe me about the fact that the term illegal came from the double eagle? At best. On the coin in 1933. I, I don't, you know, I had, I kind of, I'll be honest, what happened was there, there at that part I had kind of, I had went somewhere else. You had been extremely. I didn't even hear that. You've been impressed into like just speechlessness. Is that what you're saying? No, I was thinking about. I was just thinking about where I went wrong. Yeah, that kind of got me here. Mm, I see into the into like, this position into this profession. I see. 
into this into this mm. where what happened and i think maybe it was a it it started a, probably around i think it has a lot maybe to do with bread bundy maybe i, I was I going to maybe go with the curse i don't know i was going to go back to to iraq but you know i don't know maybe here nor there um okay well the last I was one never was in a iraq. Test to just, I was in afghanistan okay well iraq afghanistan you know you can't spell iraq without afghanistan letters yeah they say that a yep. lot of people say that i do the last one was a test because we didn't get illegal from the word double legal from 1933 coin. Illegal to bring this full circle. This is going to blow your mind. Blow your mind. Yeah. The word illegal comes from the century, 17th century French word illegal. How about that? <laughs> you were so happy yeah. with yourself. <laughs> I wish the listeners could see you. You're just. From ear to ear, you've got like a black dahlia smile. Is this? I don't know how I do it. Just, you were so pleased. Yes, thank you. With yourself. Uh, so, like I said, the oh, the sisters confessed to the murders. Christina's twenty eight. Leah, Leah's twenty two at the time. Christina's twenty eight. And I, you know what? I think this shows the level of brutality here in the death is really just a reflection of the sisters' work ethic. They were really good workers. They had great work ethic. They went all the way with the murders. They didn't half-ass it. And I've always said this. I think attempted murders, I think if you did a study, I bet attempted murderers, they all have very poor work ethic. I would say and so. I, and, I, and I believe that. Yeah. I, yeah, not thorough. I think it's – I think how well you murder is probably a, a direct representation of your work ethic and is – as we found out with the bodies, this is 30 minutes, maybe to an hour of murdering that they did here, even though they, they really – they didn't skimp on the job. Right. That's they were very – and I think that goes well with their work ethic. That's a reflection of their work ethic. Now, they had no remorse. They never showed any remorse. Yeah. Never thought of it that way, but like now I think about it, like the next time I'm at Subway and my sandwich is done exquisitely well, that guy's probably a murderer. And if he's not a murderer, if he did murder, it would be really – it would be a really well-done murder. Efficient, right. Oh, yeah. Like they would be very dead. Boy, ice-cocked like, super people, ice-cocked. And you can take that to the bank. You can. That's what everybody says. You know what you can't take to the bank? Okay, so Leah said that the reason the mansion was dark, she she, she explained to the police, was because they were trying – to 1933 gold coin. That's what you can't take to the bank. I'm sorry. I had to just say, I'm sorry. That's what you can't take when it's illegal. I keep thinking about that fucking coin. Um, when they asked the girls what happened, so now we get to find out what happened, right? Leah says the reason the mansion was dark was because they had been trying to iron the clothing. And it turns out the iron was faulty and it, and it blew a fuse when they threw a breaker and it shortened the electricity, killed all the lights. Now, they had had issues with this iron in the past. It had been sent off in the past. And isn't that crazy? You know, you didn't just, like, you had an iron and that was your iron. Yeah, you couldn't just throw it away and buy one. Yeah. yeah. Shoes were the same way. They'd, like, re resole their shoes rather than buying new shoes. It was weird. Ovens, everything was just, you just, whenever you bought one when you were, like, 16 years old and you got married, that was the one you had until you died of black lung at 37. Yeah, the only thing you got new was children. You got rid of the old ones when they got black lung and died. You just got another one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So they said, you know, they went to do the clothing, the, the, to iron the clothes. 
because what had what had been what the plan had been for Genevieve and Leone to come home, change clothes, and then go to their go to their dinner meeting with 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 Leno. Right. So Leone and Genevieve they get home around five thirty five thirty p.m. Christine meets them at the door, explains what has happened, and Leone gets pissed. The lights are out. The clothing isn't done. Mm. The ironing isn't done. And that's when uh, that's when Leone puts her hands on Christine. She she gets mad, and according to Leah, Christine blacks out almost in rage and gouges her eyes out with her thumbs. Now, there's another story. There is another story that suggests, and it, really which one you choose, what, what happened here. There's another story that says that <laughs> the Pappen sisters were kind of trying to instigate a little bit. And when Madame Lancelin is like, hey, why is the power out? Why isn't my clothing done? <laughs> The sisters are like, hey, yeah, uh, the power's out because Christine urinated into an electrical socket. And that understandably made a monsieur Lancelin angry. Oh, yeah. So one of those two things happened. Either they instigated by saying, yeah, Christine pissed in the light socket, bitch. What's she going (laughs) to do? You know? (laughs) Or they just – there was the the misunderstanding with the iron. Either way, Leone gets angry and starts to – Starts pinching, <laughs> starts pinching Christine, and that's when Christine blacks out, and gouges her eyes out. Now, while Christine is gouging Leone's eyes out, she yells at Leah or Sloth <laughs> to start doing the same thing to Genevieve, and Leah uh-huh. does. She listens to her. Wow. They've got both of the girls. They've got Leone and Genevieve, you know, immobilized, and that's when Christina runs downstairs and gets a knife and a hammer. And then she comes back up, and they start taking turns with the knife and the hammer. Whichever one has the knife starts stabbing. The one with the hammer starts hitting him repeatedly in the face, and they switch weapons and take turns. This happens for uh, for almost an hour. They've been dead a long time by the time they're done. Ugh. They also beat their faces in with a pewter pot that was broken when they got to the crime scene. So they just kind of take turns just beating the faces in, stabby, stabby, cut, cut. And after they're both dead, they're laying face down, they flip them over, pull up their skirts, and like I said, start slashing up the backs of their legs and their their buttockses. Terrible. Uh, you may think that they're done here, but no. Apparently, poor Genevieve was on her period when she died, and it's at this point that the sisters gather as much of her menstrual blood as they can, and they rub it. They rub it all over the the corpses. Both oh. of them. They just cover the corpses and right. they start basting it like a turkey, like a Thanksgiving turkey, basting the the, the bodies in the in the in the period blood. Wow! In the, in the vagina blood. Oh, that's rough. And then they claim self defense. I wonder if they did that because they're like, "Oh man, how are we going to explain this away?" And we'll be like, "Hey, she's on her period. That could explain all the blood." And they're like, "Yeah." I don't, I don't know, but they. My favorite part is that they claim self-defense. Imagine, yeah. Imagine watching this unfold on like a security camera. You're like, oh well, they said that they were. Let's what, and then it's an hour long attack. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's a long time. Because self-defense is you're 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 open carrying. Somebody attacks you with a brick. You grab your weapon and put two well-placed rounds into the chest. Of the attacker. Yes. And then you reholster your weapon. And call the cops. And call the police. Exactly. That's self-defense. Self-defense, however, is not pinch, pinch. <laughs> and then you spend an hour clubbing their faces. 
and rubbing their period blood off. <laughs> Good point. So after they do this this horrible deed, they go up to their, their little servants' quarters and they clean up. They get in their bathrobes and they snuggle up in bed together very romantically. And and it's about this time that the police bust in. Mm. So the police gather, gather the evidence, the knife, the hammer, the pot, etc. The Both sisters are obviously arrested. And upon investigation, it's found that they had saved a total, between the two of them, 23,000 francs. Wow. Uh, this equals, at the time, 4,245 American dollars, which would come to $84,406 today. That's quite a savings. They had saved a large chunk of money, yes. Now, they received a court-ordered attorney, and he obviously pled insanity on, on, their, on their behalf. They were put in separate prisons, and this caused a lot of anxiety and stress, especially with Christine. They, they hated being apart, and Christine really kind of – it is said that Leah was uh, just an extension, really, of Christine's personality, that, that, her, that she was almost consumed by Christine. Mm. But it, it turns out whenever they got sent in separate – they got sent to separate prisons, Christine was the one that had the issues, not Leah. Really? Interesting. So even though Leah, it, it almost seemed, relied solely on Christine, whenever they broke that bond, it was Christine and not Leah that started falling to pieces. Mm, probably a control thing. Now, prior to the trial, they were allowed to see each other and things got a little weird. People that watched them interact said that their actions looked like they were in a sexual relationship. Ugh. Now, Christine... Starts to lose it in prison while she's awaiting trial, and it's at this point that she tries to gouge out her own eyeballs. These people, they really, something with the eyes. I've never been able to put this together, what the deal is with the eyeballs. One thing that's interesting you mentioned was they found an eyeball on the um, stairs right during the murder. Yes. That leaves three other eyeballs unaccounted for. They're not unaccounted for, actually. Oh. Two of them were laying beside... Genevieve and one of them was underneath Leone's body. So they were all they were all accounted for. I was going to say maybe they ate them, but okay, now they're accounted for. But there is something going on here with eyes. Yeah, for sure. Because she tries to gouge out her own eyeballs. Now, they stop her. They put her in a straight jacket, uh, which um, that's different than a gay jacket. Christine claims that this this kind of blackout angry thing that she did when she tried to gouge out her own eyeballs is exactly what happened on the night of the murders that she kind of just loses herself and something takes over but at the trials christine takes full responsibility and then leah says no no i take full responsibility and that kind of puts an end to the old step stereotype that the french are cowards because they're both like no it was me it was me it's kind of like that have you ever seen that movie life with with uh eddie murphy and martin lawrence yeah yeah mm-hmm you know, whenever the warden is like, whose baby is this? And that one's like, out of happy. And <laughs> it was me. That baby's, that's kind of what they did here. Like, I did it. And they're like, and Leah's like, no, I did it. There's other movies mm. with examples. What is that? One of those movies where like, who did this? And they're like, I did it. I did it. Well, I don't know because life is the only R-rated movie that I've ever seen, but. No, that's not surprising to me in the least. Yeah. Oh, Captain, my Captain, when everybody starts standing on top of the desks, isn't that a kind of a I did it? Everybody's what, like, what, what is it? Oh, Captain, my Captain. You know, when they're all standing on the... What year did that come out with? In 1947? Uh, oh, Captain, my Captain? <laughs> no, it was from that movie with Robin Williams where he's the the teacher and they're all like, Goodwill Hunt. No, nah, it's not Goodwill Good Hunting. Goodwill Hunting? I don't know. 
Maybe Goodwill Hunting. I don't. I don't. Never mind. Disregard my my suggestion. Anyways, September 1933, the trial takes place, and uh, the the they pretty quickly decide that Christine is the mastermind here, and obviously the cause was between was the feud between her and Leone. Uh, they concluded that Leah, or as we have began to call her Sloth, the younger one, was completely consumed by her sister. Like I said, the insanity plea doesn't work. And three medical experts find the sisters to be sane. Now, they find they find them both guilty, and Christine is sentenced to the guillotine, death by guillotine, which is really exciting. The guillotine has always excited me. I don't know why. I love hearing stories of the guillotine. Now, no woman had been guillotined in France since 1887. Mm, really? So this is a pretty big deal. Yeah. How much? This is 33, so... 33 plus 13, 10, 43. So 46 years since a woman has been executed by guillotine. So Christine is sentenced to death by guillotine. Leah gets 10 years hard labor, and they are kept apart during their time in prison. Now, because Christine is apart from Leah while she's awaiting her death sentence, she starts getting crazier and crazier. She can't, she, she cannot stand being away from Leah. She begs and begs prison officials to see Leah. She goes on hunger strikes. She treat, keeps trying to gouge her eyes out. And they, she stays in a straitjacket much of the time. Now, eventually, the warden gives in and grants a visit. And this visit was really weird. It said that Christine made sexual advances towards Leah. And she immediately rushed her and started trying to unbutton her blouse and kept whispering in her ear, Say yes. Say yes. Say yes. Yikes. Say yes. Now, if you're not hard right now, Op, I don't know. You, you've got to be dead inside. You say pilot me over life. Say yes. No. Say yes. <laughs> I wonder what she meant by that. I will stay flaccid, as placid as the sea. I wonder what she meant by that. Say yes. Because they said that she just kept saying that, but she never said what to say yes to. Mm. Yeah. Well, the rest of it was probably their ESPN they were using through their brains, the rest of the conversation. Oh, yeah, because yeah, she didn't want to say. Okay. Now, on January 2nd, 1934, French President Albert Labram issued a stay of execution for Christine, and she was resentenced and given life with hard labor. Fortunately, she stays in prison for a few years and then gets transferred to an insane asylum where she refused to eat, went into fits of madness, went completely crazy being away from Leah, and slowly deteriorates away and dies. Christine dies May 18th, 1937, at 32 years old, and she just literally wasted away like where the red fern grows. That's terrible. Just like a dog. Have you ever seen that movie? Yeah, the dog. Uh, with old Dan and little Ann. I think old Dan dies, or maybe little Ann dies. One of the dogs die, and the other one just kind of wastes away and dies. Yeah, it's sad. Same same thing. That's what happened here. Christine dies at 32 years old. She just wastes away. Hmm. Now, in 1941, four years after her sister Christine dies, Leah gets out of prison, moves back in with her mother, gets a job in a hotel under a fake identity, and is believed to have died in 1982. Wow. And that's it. That's it. That's the end. She, uh, she just... She dies in 1982. There's a documentary on YouTube that you can look up called, I believe it was Finding the Pappen Sister, Finding the Pappen, Searching for the Pappen Sisters, where they claim that they found, uh, it was hard to find her because she had a fake identity, but they claim that they found Leah living under a fake identity. She now has dementia, and she died in like 2001 or 2002, but I think it's all bullshit. I think she probably died in 1982. Yeah, that'd, that'd be a very long life. Ugh. 
Yes. Crazy. And that's it, Op. That's it. And now, do you want to? Uh, we got a. We got. We got this recording out. Can I? Can I finish talking to you about what I was trying to talk about before you made me do this? Yeah. No. I. I mean, I actually have to run. I've got. Um. I had. I didn't know this, but right when you called, I had ordered some onion rings, and they. Uh, okay. Just, whatever. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Op. Okay. I'll, well, if I'm here, right. if I'm still around, yeah. And you remember this that I said this. If I'm still here, if I'm still around, I'll talk to you tomorrow, and you can take that however you want it. I'll take you to the bank, buddy. Not like a 1933 gold piece, though. So I'll talk. I'll just call. I'll call you tomorrow. Come, whatever happens. Yeah, okay. Wh- whatever. All right. Whatever. All right. Hugs. Yeah. Okay. Fuck you. <laughs>